Uh, the last few years have seen huge changes in society and uh, many of those changes have seen the Christian position uh, losing ground and uh, devalued. Uh, scripture classes were removed in Victoria. Uh, Same-sex marriage has been legalised. LGBTQI activists are demanding even more, of course. Uh, Late-term abortions have been legalised in the last year or two. Uh, gender fluidity uh, has been in celebrated and encouraged. Uh, but it's not just an anti-Christian bias that's behind all of that. Uh, there's something else, something more foundational, I think. It's not gender politics. It's not a new atheism. It's not even secular humanism. Underneath all of those things, I think, is a self-determinism. Uh, people who feel they have the right to do whatever they want to do. An individualism. Uh, they have a moral responsibility to express who they are and no one else has the right to tell them what to do. It's unacceptable to tell someone that they're wrong or to restrict them in any way. Uh, Glenn Harrison, in his book, A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing, says that in Western society, radical, expressive individualism is the dominant way of thinking and acting, and we don't even realise that we're, we're immersed in it. We accept, without thought or question, people's right to live out this statement, I'm an individual, my true self must be expressed. I have a moral obligation to do and be whatever I want. No one has the right to challenge that sovereignty. It's not just the young. It's not just radicals or academics. That sort of thinking is mainstream. It's everywhere. Uh, Harrison says people have grabbed the power of story, of narrative, that plot line of radical individualism, it's in almost every movie and TV show and every novel. Uh, think about the movies that are popular. The individual stands up for himself. The individual expresses who he really is. And, and when he achieves that, we all cheer. Well, where did that individualism come from? Uh, many people, uh, sociologists, look back to the, the sexual revolution of the 60s. Uh, but it's now so widespread, we don't even realise it. Uh, you can see the attraction in this radical individualism. It's an incredibly seductive idea that you are in control of your own destiny. You can have whatever you want. You don't have to answer to anybody. You're not responsible to anybody. Your choices are all about you. You determine right and wrong. No one else has the right to tell you. Uh, you determine your future. But here's where that sort of thinking's wrong. Self-determinism makes yourself into God. Self-determinism thinks that you're in control of your own destiny. But the reality is it's not you who controls your destiny. God controls your destiny. You're not a self-made person. You're a God-made person. And everything that comes your way is because God brings it about. And interestingly, that's the lesson that Jacob finally learns. Jacob wants to be a self-made man. Uh, we're covering chapters 28 all the way through to 33 today. Jacob uh, covers 20 years of his life. He moves from rags or from riches to rags and back up to riches again. He goes through ups and downs. He's got plans. He's ambitious. 
he expresses himself and look out anyone who wants to stop him. And he seems to end up with exactly what he wants. But along the way he learns some lessons. And in, in the end, despite all his planning, he realises that it's not because of his plans. He's not a self-made man. He's a God-made man. And God's at work fulfilling the promises he made to his family more than a century ago. It's a lesson we need to learn, along with Jacob. We need to learn it because all around us, society is speaking a different message to us. Society is saying to us, it's good and right and morally right for you to seek your own future. The greatest good is that you're free to do whatever you want. But that's a trap. It's a trap. We need to learn this lesson. Uh, quite a while ago we looked at Jacob and uh, chapter uh, 27 finishes with him cheating his older brother out of the birthright, out of the inheritance. Perhaps you know that story. He, he dresses up like his brother Esau. He goes into his blind father and uh, uh, says, I'm Esau, give me the blessing that comes with the older son. And uh, he tricks his father, gets the blessing and now his uh, brother Esau wants to kill him because Esau's missed out. And so chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob's on the run. He's leave, left home and he's heading for his uncle Moab, uh, uncle Laban in, uh, in Moab. Uh, verse 11, he stops for the night along the way. There's no Airbnb, so he just grabs a rock for a pillow. And it's a pretty sad scene, really, isn't it? He's left everything behind, everything he's cheated out of his, his brother. And it's come to this. He's all on his own. Uh, with nothing but a pillow that feels as hard as a rock, well, because it is a rock. Uh, And the only way he can go is up from here. Uh, While he's sleeping, he has a dream, verse 12, of a stairway that reaches all the way from heaven down to earth. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. Uh, In his dream, he, he sees that heaven and earth are connected. And he's there right at the manhole up into the ceiling of heaven. He's on the front doorstep and angels are coming and going and he gets an insight into the way the world works. God is actively involved. He's connected with his world and his angels are coming and going, doing his bidding. And in the vision, as God speaks, Jacob is told that this important place will be his, this doorway to heaven because God will give it to him. And God re-promises all those things he's promised his grandfather Abraham. Uh, This time he's promising them to Jacob. And then, verse 16, Jacob wakes up. He's in awe of the place where he's been camping. And then he he turns his pillow from, that's the rock, up on its end, becomes a place marker, a monument, and he renames the place Beth-El, the house of God because he's been sleeping on the front doorstep without knowing it. And he makes a vow in verse 20 and says, if God will be with me uh, so that I can make it home to Dad's place, he'll be my God. So chapter 29, he he hits the road again and he finally comes to the land of his uncle Laban. Uh, And we didn't read this bit, but you'll have to skim over it with me. Chapter 29, there's a crowd of shepherds around the well. They know his uncle Laban. Uh, And what do you know, verse 6, along comes his cousin Rachel... Uh, uh, 
with the sheep following. Cue the romantic music or whatever sort of music you have when you've got sheep everywhere. Uh, And when Jacob sees the gorgeous Rachel, he's smitten. And in verse 10, in a romantic gesture, he single-handedly heaves the heavy stone away from the mouth of the well and offers to water her sheep. And uh, men have been trying to impress girls with physical feats ever since. Uh, So verse 12 to 14, uh, Laban, her father, invites him home. And it's around this home where we start to see some payback. Some people might call it karma, but it's really God who's bringing some justice and teaching Jacob a few lessons. Because Laban has two daughters, Uh, there's Rachel, but there's also Leah, the older one. Verse 17, we're told she's not as good looking as Rachel. Uh, Rachel is lovely in form and beautiful. Laban says, don't work for me for nothing. Jacob knows what he wants. He says, verse 18, I'll work for seven years if I can marry your younger daughter, Rachel. Verse 19, Laban gives an answer that, I don't know whether it's, to me it seems like he's not really saying yes or no. Uh, He says, I suppose it's better I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. Now, if that was a contract, you'd poke some holes in it, wouldn't you? But Jacob doesn't seem to notice. Maybe he's blinded by the, the love of beautiful Rachel. So verse 20, he serves for seven years to get Rachel, but it seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Oh, isn't it? So verse 22, fast forward to the wedding. The party goes well into the night and Laban is about to pull a switch. It's like the, you know, the coconut trick where you put the ball under the coconut. Uh, I don't think it's about coconut shells. I think it's probably something to do with lots of wine and a dark tent and lots of veils maybe across faces. But the fact is Jacob wakes up in the morning and verse 25 says, there was Leah. The Hebrew literally says something like, and it was morning, and behold, Leah. You can imagine the shock on Jacob's face. The sisters have been switched. I mean, who'd be cruel enough to pull a trick like that? To fool someone who's in the dark by swapping the children around, the older for the younger. Of course. It's just what Jacob did with his own father and his older brother Esau. But Jacob doesn't see the funny side. He's furious. What have you done to me? I served you for Rachel, the good-looking one, and now I've got the plain one. Why have you deceived me? The identical words that Esau accused Jacob of a chapter earlier. But Jacob, who switched the younger for the older in his own family, gets put firmly in his place. Laban says, verse 27, you keep this one, I'll throw in the other one, Just give me another seven years' work. Jacob agrees. Uh, The self-made man who's always wanted to jump the queue and get what he wants, well, it's now going to cost him another seven years. And uh, he ends up with two wives and a couple of servant girls as well. And so the seeds are sown for another whole generation of family favourites. It happened with Isaac and Rebecca and their two sons. And it's going to happen again. A potential disaster. Verse 30 we read, Jacob lay with Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Well the next section, chapters 29 through to 30, uh, is a sorry tale of what happens when you play favourites like that. Leah the unloved wife and Rachel the barren one. Uh, Now we'll skip over those sections for 
with just one comment, uh, it becomes a bit like a baby-making competition. Both wives vying for the affection of their husband. And, and they throw their handmaidens in as well uh, as a bonus. And by chapter 30, verse 24, there are 12 sons. Everyone's having babies. And they go on to make up the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They may not be the happiest mob. There's a a few tensions there, but they're growing as a family. Now, at this point, Jacob decides it's time to leave Laban and head home. Laban tries to change his mind, not because he loves his family, but seems to be more to do with greed. See there in verse 27 of chapter 30. Uh, Laban says, I want you to stay because I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because you're here. The only reason I'm doing so well is because you're here, so don't go. Except it's interesting, Jacob seems to think it's more about him and a little less about God. See there in verse 29, Jacob says back to Laban, You know how I've worked for you and how your livestock have fared under my care. The The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I've been. But now I want to do something for myself. Now that pretty much sums up Jacob, doesn't it? The self-made man, I'm in charge, I want to determine my own future. Uh, And here's the plan, verse uh, 32 of chapter 30. Let's split our flocks. I'll take the spotted, speckled, dark lambs. Nobody likes those. I'll take them off your hands for you. It's a good deal. You keep the nice white ones and we'll know whose herd belongs to who. It's easy. Uh, Now, you should know by now Laban can't be trusted, but Jacob's not that much better. Uh, But watch this, verse 34. Laban says, I agree. You have the patchy ones, I'll have the plain ones. But then as soon as the words are out of his mouth, verse 35... He sends his sons to go and find all the speckled ones and move them to a far paddock three days' journey away so that when Jacob looks for the speckled ones, there are none there. Now at this point, Jacob, we get some uh, curious details about Jacob's selective breeding program, which is very weird really. Verse 37 to 42, it's a description of how Jacob is going to make more spotted sheep for himself. And he does it by mating the sheep in front of tree branches that have been ripped, bits of bark ripped off to make them look striped. I don't know what's going on there. It's some sort of early cognitive behavioural therapy perhaps. Uh, It's like you brainwash the sheep into having patchy lambs by looking at patchy tree branches while they're mating. Now, if that works, mums and dads, can I say you better check the sort of wallpaper that's in your bedroom? You might have all sorts of children if you don't watch out. It seems like it's some sort of combination of superstition and science uh, because as well as the the strange striped stick method, he's also selectively breeding the strong ones, which we can sort of understand from science. That's verse 41. And so in the end, the weak white animals go to Laban, the strong spotted ones go to Jacob. And then by verse 43, uh, years later, Jacob, the self-made man, the entrepreneur, he's grown exceedingly prosperous. Now at this point, chapter 31, it really is time to go home. He's been there 20 years. And God has spoken to him again. Go home, God says, verse 3. 
and I'll be with you. And I wonder if that's a reminder to Jacob about why he's really done so well. Because he finally seems to have worked it out. There in verse 4, he says, It's time to go. It's God who's prospered me. Verse 5, he's been with me. Verse 6, he hasn't allowed Laban to harm me. Seems like he's learning. Jump down to verse 12. It wasn't the spotted, the striped bits of wood at all. He says, God spoke to me in a dream and said, uh, have a look, look up and see all the goats that are streaked and speckled and spotted. Uh, I've seen how Laban's treated you and I've made it that way. Uh, The animals have turned out that way because I've done it. It's not your magic, it's not your cleverness, it's my blessing that's made you prosper. And Jacob finally seems to realise it and he obeys God and he heads home. Except verse 20, he can't sort of shake off old habits, he he sneaks off without saying goodbye. He fled his older brother Esau to go to Laban and now he's fleeing Laban and heading back home. He ends up on the run wherever he goes. He deceives Esau, has to leave, now he's deceived Laban and he has to leave. And he's headed back to Esau who as far as he knows still wants to kill him. And if we jump down to chapter 32, I guess it's no surprise as he gets closer to home, he's afraid. He sends messengers ahead of him. He sends gifts and he's in fear and distress. Especially when he hears verse 6 that Esau's coming to meet him with 400 men. It sounds like a small army. They're going to lynch him. It seems like this self-made man has finally run out of tricks. So verse 7 we read, In great fear and distress, Jacob divides the people into two groups, and the animals as well. He's splitting his assets up. He's cutting his losses. So at worst he'll only lose half of all his possessions and people. But then in verse 9 to 12 he prays. Now, I don't think he's prayed too much. We don't have any record of him praying all that much over these chapters. I wonder if this is the point we've been waiting for. A prayer where, for the first time, he totally gets it right. When he recognises that he's not a self-made man. Because you you can't pray and still think that you're in control. The the two just don't go together. When you pray, you're admitting that God is the one who changes things. And that's what Jacob realises. He's finally humbled before God, before his brother Esau as well. And the God of his fathers finally becomes his God too. Have a look there in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy. Verse 10. Of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only a staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I'm two, two groups It's not because he's a self-made man. It's not because of his clever tricks. It's not because of his striped bits of wood. It's because God has kept holding on to him. God's blessed him. And so he prays, save me from the hand of my brother Esau, I'm afraid. Verse 12, you've said I will surely make you prosper. And he throws himself on God's promises. God's promised to make him prosper. And now he wants to trust him. And then he spends the night on his own. 
Uh, he sent the rest of his crowd across the stream and it's just him with nothing except his staff, just the way it was at the start of today's story. I wonder if you've ever been in that sort of situation. You've had all of your stuff and all of your plans and all of your uh, things around you and you've trusted in them, maybe family or physical ability, a nice home, a job, plans, and you think you're fine. But then all of a sudden something happens and it, it's gone. Maybe it's bushfire. There'll be people in that situation or, or drought or unemployment or illness or divorce. Everything's gone and you're humbled and you're alone. And that's Jacob. Except he's not alone because suddenly in verse 24 there's someone wrestling with him. And it goes on all night. And it's one of the weirdest scenes in the whole Bible, I think. But I think in a way, this person who's wrestling with Jacob is a kind of explanation for what Jacob's been going through. Uh, this prayer that he makes. If you like, it's a, it's a metaphor, a picture for his life up to this point. So Jacob and this man wrestle. The man can't overpower him. Uh, verse 23, so he, he does this sort of tricky MMA move and he, he dislocates Jacob's hip. But, but Jacob won't let go. He's got a dislocated hip. It's useless, but he's not going to let go of this man. And the man says, let me go. I have to go. It's daybreak. And Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And the man says, what's your name? I, I need to know your name to bless you. And Jacob says, it's Jacob, which means the grasper. The one who holds on. That's what happened when he was born. He was holding on to his brother's leg. And the man says in verse 28, well, that's not your name anymore. It's not Jacob. I'm going to call you Israel. The one who struggles with God. Because now you understand. And that's his name. The one who struggles with God. And it's a name that passes down to a whole nation of strugglers with God. Now, I don't know exactly what's going on. There's all sorts of theories. Was it God? Was it Jesus, an incarnation? Like a, it was an early version of Jesus. Was it an angel who, who stands in the place of God? Jacob doesn't know as well, but, but somehow he knows he's been face to face with God. And he's kept at it and, and wanted God's blessing. And he's not going to let go until God blesses him. It's almost as if his prayer, as if coming to the emptiness of himself, to the end of himself, he's finally learned that he needs to hold on to God's promises and hold on until he's blessed. If you like, his whole life, these 20 years, have been a wrestle for God to bless him. And so verse 30, he calls the place Peniel, which means the face of God, and the dawn comes and he limps away, walking into the sunrise... A broken man, but a better man. And he's heading off to face up to his brothers with his 400 strong army. I wonder if that's a place that you've got to. Uh, struggling with God. You've got to an empty point and you're wrestling, grasping on for God to bless you and to look after you. Maybe you've got to that point that Jacob got to and you've been humbled. 
My prayer through all of this drought and the bushfires has been that there'll be Aussies around who get to that point of being humbled before God and turn to him. And maybe even with this coronavirus and the, 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 the fears, uh, we're praying that God would humble the Chinese government and uh, Chinese people as well, and plenty of people who are scared. Uh, and uh, my prayer is that Aussies will be humbled and will look upwards to God. If that's you, if you've gone through something like that and that's been your experience, there's actually good news. The reality is uh, the solution for us is much easier than it was for Jacob. Uh, We may not get visions, we may not get to see up into heaven, but the New Testament says actually meeting with God is much easier, much clearer than it was for Jacob. We don't have to grapple in the dark, we don't have to wait until we dream a dream. God's revealed himself in his son, in Jesus. If you're a quick Bible flipper, just flip over to John chapter 1, up towards the back of the Bible. I'm not sure of the page number. John chapter 1. Jacob called the place where he wrestled with God Peniel because he came face to face with God. But John says, as amazing as that was, all of us who encountered Jesus have come face to face with God as well. John chapter 1 verse 18, it says, No one's ever seen God, but God the one and only, Jesus, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. People who meet Jesus are seeing God face to face. God became flesh in the person of Jesus. God became knowable, not by a dream or a dark wrestling stranger in the night, but in his son, And Jesus himself picks up that story about Jacob, about heaven and earth being joined. A few verses on in John chapter 1, verse 51. He's calling all of his disciples together and one called Nathanael is amazed at Jesus' words. And Jesus says this, he says, forget the stairway, verse 51, I tell you the truth, you're going to see something far better than what you just saw. You'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, talking about himself. And by that he means, I'm the stairway. I'm the connection between God and humanity, between heaven and earth. I'm the one God's using to bring about his purposes on earth. It's far far easier for us than it was for Jacob. But in another way, we're we're the same as Jacob. Because Jesus says, if if you want to know God, you have to do the same thing that Jacob did. You have to humble yourself. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to come with empty pockets and a humbled heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the humble and the broken and the poor because he'll lift them up and fill them up. If you haven't made a connection with God, maybe it's time, like Jacob, you came limping home to the God who made you, who's given you wonderful promises. Come home to the place, to the person where heaven and earth meet. Come home to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jacob. We thank you for his humanity. Uh, We thank you for, ultimately... Uh, his trust in you. 
uh, even though he, he had to come to the end of his own plans. Uh, Lord, we recognise something of that in us, and so we pray that uh, you would help us to be trusting you, help us to recognise that it's not us who makes our lives uh, what they are, but it's you. Uh, help us to look to you and to love you and to trust you. Amen.